Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So I gotta talk about the sometimes circuitous, is that how you pronounce it? Circuitous? Circuitous? Whatever. The weird way in which I uh, sometimes get guests on the show. So today's guest, Almar Reyes, is someone that I've known for 10, probably 15 years. Uh, A friend of my buddy Garrett Gonzalez, who has been on this show twice and is still a very good friend of mine. And uh, Almar and I have always bonded over music talk music and not really much else and then he hit me up one day and was like yo i'd like to be on your show i think i have an interesting viewpoint and i was like sure i you know would love to know more about you and uh from there we started talking a little bit more about deeper stuff and we had this conversation and i was blown away is maybe a little bit too strong a term, but I was very pleasantly surprised by the conversation that we had. Uh, We talk a little bit about music, sure, but Almar also opens up a lot about hitting a stage that I and I think a lot of guests and listeners of this show are familiar with, that hitting the mid-stage in life where your kids are grown, you're out there out of the house, and you're like, oh shit, what do I do with the rest of my life now that I don't have this huge responsibility of rearing a child properly on me. And we go in depth about that. Uh, We talk about his upbringing as a military brat. Uh, We talk about Asian culture a little bit, uh, racism, all sorts of stuff. So uh, it's a really deep, really good conversation. And I am glad that Almar reached out. Here he is. My name is Almar. I'm I'm actually not sure what I am these days. Professionally, I'm a marketer. Been in the business for about 20 years now, mostly in the digital space, having touched a bunch of different industries across e-commerce, where you and I first met, did a long stint in gaming, have recently been attached to really, really new startups and some established companies here and there, and really just trying to be successful in what I do for work. But at the same time, I don't think work necessarily defines me. I'm not an expert at one thing. I think I have an interest in lots of things and also just how my life is made up. I'm also 
a husband. I'm also a father to, to two grown kids. I like to think that I'm a musician. At least people tell me that I do that. And sometimes a pop culture nerd, although I think in these days, now the further we get away from my generation, which I think is fair to talk about, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, then I'm thinking, well, okay, maybe I'm not as pop culture, you know, <laughs> I guess, educated as I think I am. But that's what I have my kids for, because then they, they keep me honest, and they keep me um, going and all this stuff. And so, yeah, I, I, I think I'm a little bit of all those things. And when my wife and I were just talking about this morning, we actually are just newly empty nesters. I think now we're trying to figure out, well, what does that mean for us? And We've always known a life with our kids. And I'm sure this is a common story, especially among people that are going through what I'm going through or that are close to my age. And so how do we then navigate that? And what does that mean? So for some people, buy a brand new car and go take it out there. And one of my, one of my buddies does that. Other folks discover a second career. But I'm trying to keep that conversation and all that open. I, I think I, I owe that to myself. And yeah, that's kind of also what brought me to you. I feel like this is a, an interesting inflection point, and I'm going to leave that. I'm going to bring it back to the question, who am I? I don't know. <laughs> you bring up a lot of touch points that I, I would like to talk about. Not sure. sure in what order. The empty nester thing is really top of mind for me. I was talking to a coworker yesterday, and his kid just left for college two or three weeks ago, whatever. It's about that time. And he's like, well, shit, for the first time in 18 years, me and my wife are looking at each other like, okay, now what? (laughs) This house has been three people for so long. Yeah. And now it's two people. And I'm not a parent, so I don't know how often this conversation comes up in the general discourse. I'm not sure that it's talked about enough. What do couples do? What do parents do? when the thing that they've been responsible for, the thing that's united them, but also this thing that's just been in their presence for so long is now no longer there. It's somewhere else living its own life. Yeah. I mean, the thing is we'll always be parents, right? I mean, that won't change. And for us that are parents, I think a lot of us feel that way. But I think that's exactly what it is. We did look at each other and we're like, now what? Because all those excuses that we used to have about, well, let's go do this thing, or let's go pursue this hobby, or let's focus on X, Y, Z. Oh, we can't because the, the kid has banned, or there, there's this other thing that we need to do, or well, maybe that's not appropriate for a five-year-old or whatever they were when they were that age. Now we don't have a lot of excuses. And so I think that is where we want to try to uncover, well, what are truly excuses and whether they be limitations of whatever kind versus the excuses that they, we don't have an excuse anymore. Right. And so how do we then unlock all that and, you know, just figure out what can we do or how do I take off what those limitations used to be in my head? Do you have any ideas yet of what the future, the empty nest future looks like for you? Or are you still just in the shock phase? I think we're still in the shock phase. It's coming down a little bit. And we're looking at minor, in, in, in retrospect, kind of dumb things. Things like how to cook for less people, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I know that's a really small, stupid thing. But, you know, if you talk to a lot of immigrant parents and, you know, if you know anybody, a lot of them still can't let that go. And I remember talking to my wife's parents and they would still cook for like six people. And we're like, mom, dad, what are you guys doing? And they would have leftovers in the fridge for days that would just go bad. And it was kind of hilarious to me. 
And so even something as dumb as that, but other things like, wow, the house is much quieter, good and bad. Is that a bad thing? Probably not. But also for some folks who, who maybe don't necessarily have a, an open relationship with their partner, it, it could be challenging. And going back to the COVID days, especially the early COVID days, you probably heard some of these stories of couples, families that were locked in together and it just decimated them, right? Mm -hmm. Because they were so used to the go, go, go and not having to spend that much face time. It kind of wreaked havoc on their lives. Some good, some bad. Luckily, we came out of it okay. And so we're doing all right. But yeah, I don't know. So one of the things that we tried, you know, we made an excuse for, which we actually knocked off the list is we always said, well, let's go do some outdoorsy stuff. I'll admit I am not an outdoorsy person. I have never been camping. I've been glamping, which is great because there was running water in a toilet and all that stuff. Yeah, um, pass. Okay. But the, one of the things that we kept putting on our list was we should do a hike. And we did it. So we're like, okay, cool. All right. Baby steps, baby <laughs> steps. And, and my, my daughter who was still living with us, she's also not an outdoorsy person. So we were like, hey, do you want to go on a hike? She's like, nope. I'm like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> Fair, fair. So let's go do something more family that the three of us will enjoy. And so, by the way, I also should add that I do have an older daughter who left the nest a couple of years ago permanently. She was going to school here locally, San Francisco in the Bay Area. So we would get to see her more often. So I think that's why the empty nest thing didn't feel as genuine with the first one left because she could come home at a moment's notice. She was about an hour away by car, by train. And she would come home on long weekends, that kind of stuff. We felt her leaving when she moved to Brooklyn. Yeah, a, a couple of years ago um, now, or a little over a year ago now. And so then almost immediately, six months out, or about a year later, then the younger one leaves. So now that's why this nest, empty nest feeling has been accelerated, just to give some context. Right on. And along with the empty nest conversation, I feel like inevitably comes the conversation about aging because your kids yeah. have grown. And... We're all aging, right? Yeah. But you and I are probably in the general same age range. And it is a really interesting period in culture to be a Gen Xer, to be middle-aged. Yeah. I feel like when I was in my late teens and early 20s, mid-20s, people who were 20 years older than me, we still had some cultural touch points that were the same. Mm -hmm. Now... I'm looking at myself in my mid-40s and talking to people who are in their 20s, and it's like, I don't understand what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> There's definitely a gap because the generation or two generations after us were raised in such a completely different cultural environment mm -hmm. than we were, thanks to technology and social media and phones. And I'm just wondering like how you're and also you're here and you got your snapback and your t-shirt. And when I was a younger dude, mid forties didn't look like us. I, we actually talk about this a lot for the disconnection with the younger generation. And there are definitely some parts where I do feel like, I don't know what that is. Like I just recently, this is going to age me, but it's fine. Cause I think we're supposed to talk about this stuff, but someone talked about having Riz and I was like, what is that? And so I don't know if you've heard that before. Saw, would you, was that a social media conversation that you had? Ah, I don't know if I had it per se, but we had it with my youngest and that's how it came up because we were at dinner and my friend's daughter talked about, oh yeah, this dude was trying to riz me up. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? I'm not going to pretend. And so again, short for charisma, yes. it is, and it is the way somebody 
is able to essentially for our generation spit game yeah. Yeah. so that's how i had to translate it from my friend it's, i was like oh yeah they were trying to spit game and they're like aha okay got it it's coming back to me now uh, <laughs> a, a friend of mine in our general age range had a similar conversation not too long ago and i was like the only riz that i know is in new edition so <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I, I think maybe it's my kids' thing. But we tend to at least try to meet each other where we're supposed to be. So they'll clue me in on some of the lingo and some of the thinking. Especially my younger one, very Gen Z. So she will say that, oh, yeah, that's not what a Gen Z would do. This is how a Gen Z would respond. Yeah, I know. And even she scolded me and my wife on just even the way we text people. Like, oh, you text like a Gen X. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you are really formal you add periods i was like what are you talking about that's like it's, it's called punctuation right and grammar <laughs> but it, that, that's what it shows you it's just these small disconnects that to your point i kind of felt but it, it feels different and again maybe it's also because my parents my wife's parents were both immigrant parents mm. so that disconnect i think was even bigger it was vaster it crossed not just generations but it also you know crossed countries it crossed cultures, and so it was just a little bit different. Now, on the flip side, and I want to know what you think about this. This, this, this tips into the music side of the house. My kids are so attuned with music, way more than I ever was. And I think that's actually a good sign of what the internet has provided. And I'm going to give an example of how that felt. So, like... If I were to ask them to look back on a song 20 years ago and think about it, that's what, like 2003, what was out at that time? Early Kanye. I'm trying to think of some of the music I was listening to. Like, Even like Amy Winehouse, because I was like around right. 2005, 2004. Right. They know all the words. They're really familiar. They hear it all the time. It resonates with them. And yes, they know it's old and they do call it people music for the most part, but they get it. And if you think about our generation, and if you think about, let's say, 70s and 80s, and you go back 20 years, I didn't have that same relationship with the music that was coming out in the 60s and 50s. Maybe I knew like the really popular songs, but my older one would also know some deep cuts. And I was like, whoa. And they're like, well, it's called the internet, daddy. And I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> you know, it's called Spotify. It's like, okay, I, I get it. So yeah, I don't know what, if you've kind of felt the same thing. What do you think? I feel like technology has closed that gap. A little bit. Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought about that very much, but it, you're right, where there are a lot of kids now who you could throw on Fleetwood Mac, and they'll be like, yeah, I know this song. This song is 50 years old. <laughs> Whereas when I was 25, or even in 2003, I guess I was 27 in 2003, mm -hmm. if you had played me a song from 1953, I'd have been like, what? Get, get this old shit out of my face. Right, like, right. I would have no cultural context to it. So I think technology is a huge part of it, but also people are living longer. Artists' careers are lasting longer. And I think there's a combination, a tie between nostalgia and technology that keeps this stuff in the forefront because it's always somebody's birthday, somebody's anniversary. A record came out on this day. That stuff is kind of foregrounded. Yeah. And I, I think also, too, maybe just because not just their access to technology, but even my access to technology. If you think about if you wanted to play that Beatles record because you had that song in your head that came out in the 60s, how would you even access that back in the 80s? Right? You, you just don't. You wait for it to play in the radio 
or you take your ass to the record store and right you know, and try spend to find dollars on there. Yeah, exactly. now it's like you do a Google search. You don't even have to pay for anything, and you'll find it. I mean, it's, it's right it's there. there. It's right it's there. Right yeah. There. No, it's really interesting. We are both second generation kids. Yep. I'm curious what your experience was like. And were you born here or were? No, I was born here. Um, okay. I was actually born in the Bay Area. Oh, I, I guess I can give a little bit more background there. I was born in the Bay Area. My dad was in the military, so I was actually a military brat. Okay. And I moved from the Bay Area to Japan and did most of my elementary school years in Japan. Oh. And so I actually claimed that as a big chunk of my adolescence. And then when I was a young teen, I think maybe 12 or 13, moved to San Diego which is the reason why <laughs> I now, like, that's also where I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm from. And so I, I claimed that and then moved to the Bay Area after high school to kind of work and do the things. Even here in the Bay Area, I will still talk shit about Bay Area teams because I have nothing else to, to cling on to. And for me, it's a good conversation. So I, I actually don't mind it at all. I don't know how much of a sports junkie you are, but okay, okay. Yeah, so there are definitely some Bay Area teams that fall into the same division as some of the former San Diego teams. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's always a good trash talking session. So yeah, that's how my parents came over was that my dad joined the military as a young adult. And then eventually he got married and then brought his wife here, my mom, and then then had me and my brother. So it's just the two of us. What for the people who don't know, and also I think every immigrant experience is different depending on where you're coming from time and history you're coming from, all that stuff can make things markedly different. What was your experience like? I was well adjusted in the sense that I was lucky both in Japan and in San Diego that I had a community of other folks, whether they be military living on the base, but definitely in both places. I'm Filipino. Lots of other Filipino Americans that were also my generation. So that was the way we bonded because a lot of the stories were the same. And there was also a lot of jokes that one would tell, especially coming from San Diego. If you were Filipino and your dad was in the Navy and you're from San Diego, you probably knew each other. Or your moms were nurses. These are all stereotypes. Your moms right. were nurses and they worked together or something really weird like that. And for the record, my mom was not a nurse. So we, we broke that stereotype. You broke the stereotype. Yeah. There you go. So finding that sense of community, luckily for me, wasn't difficult. And I think that's actually what helped pull me through and not have some of the identity crises that you hear, especially about immigrant kids who, and you've heard some of these stories that I'm going to use a Vietnam example. They escaped the stuff that was happening there with their family. They get plopped into the middle of butthole America, where they're the only Asians and surrounded by a bunch of white people. And now the best way to survive is to not be as Vietnamese as possible. Right, yeah. Assimilate, 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 assimilate. Yeah. And, and Filipinos were actually not immune to that either. And I heard the stories too, less from my dad, more from my wife's dad, but kind of the same thing. The assimilate, put your nose down, head down, don't, don't cause trouble and just be really successful, work really hard, that kind of thing. And then varying levels of that, right? Some totally ignore their culture to try to do that assimilation. Some were able to still mesh that in. When I used to be in college, we used to do a thing called Filipino Culture Night or Filipino Culture Night PCNs. And all the colleges, especially in California, but pretty much around the U.S., have some version of 
a Filipino club and the Filipino club tackles a lot of these issues because they know that is a very common theme. And so I was actually really heavily involved during my college years to try to tell some of those stories. And so that's why I think it, it helped too. Just again, like-minded folks, we're all bonding, trauma bonding in some cases to kind of get through it. Understood. Do you feel, culturally speaking, you are in a place where you've reconciled yourself with the different pieces of your culture, whether it's being Filipino, being Filipino-American, being American, all that stuff. Because I know for some people, it can feel like a constant tug of war. Like, am I too Americanized? Am I Americanized enough? There's that whole exchange. I don't think I had as much of that identity crisis, just because I don't think my parents were not they they didn't feel one way or another. Like they didn't try to make us more Filipino or say you should be more American or whatever it is. If anything, I do remember them very much saying that, no, we are Filipino American and we should not be ashamed of either side. Growing up as an American kid, but also growing up with Filipino ethnicity and heritage, that is just part of who we are. So I think I've been able to embrace both of those things. I think what's evolved over the years is, well, what does that mean to be Filipino? What does that mean to be an American? And how do I take those bits and pieces? And now what are some of the conversations that are happening, especially in the Filipino diaspora, is, well, if you're Filipino-American, to your point, is that Filipino enough? Mm-hmm. Because I don't have that same connection to the homeland, quote-unquote, that other folks in my generation has. And so does that make me less Filipino? No. Salt, I think about stuff like that. It's not even as as the person I am now, I think about that stuff and I'm like, who's judging? Who appointed a person or some persons to be the arbiter mm-hmm. of who is what enough? You don't get to decide that. I get to decide that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And who should be telling our stories? Who should be showcasing that? And, and, and that's why when the term diaspora became kind of more of the way we discuss it, that to me felt like the right way because it it doesn't limit you to this one way of identifying yourself it doesn't limit you to you had to be born there or both parents have to be filipino right so that's where i like to start that place of conversation is well okay are you part of the diaspora sure okay then let's hear the story because to me that's important because i think all these little things will shape how you view yourself And even like me growing up, again, I mentioned growing up on a military base, that was interesting because it was like growing up in a small town. And so that was, everybody knows each other. And so if anything, coming from that military base experience to San Diego, which is still a small city by New York, LA, you know, San Francisco standards. But to me, it was huge. I mean, I had running into people I'd never seen before. And of course, one of the first things I was thinking was, damn, man, these people are mean. (laughs) So that was weird to me. But again, having the the, the Filipino community around me, and I knew I could lean on that because we had friends and family, people from the old town. So that was was another another dynamic. And I don't know if this happens in other cultures. I'm sure it does. But in the Philippines, when people come to the U.S., one of the ways they stay connected is to meet up with other people that came from not just their town, but sometimes even their straight barrio like the few streets where they're from, they all get together. They have these big festivals because in the towns, they used to have these festivals, mostly religious based, 
but that was a way for them to stay connected with other people. And so that was another way for me to stay connected too, because then my parents would want to see their friends and family from the town or the neighboring town. And then we would go to these big events with lots of food and some sort of Jesus figure dancing around or something very churchy. And it was rooted in that culture. And so that's why I feel like I was lucky enough to have seen all that and not have missed it as much growing up as a kid. I think that is somewhat common. I speaking from my experience, you know, my grandparents kept people from their home country around them constantly. They all kind of settled in within short driving distance from one another. Yeah. And on Saturdays or Sundays or Friday nights, there would be get togethers mm-hmm. and everybody would hang out and gossip about people that were still in the old country and cook and do all that stuff. So yep. there definitely was a very much uh, a network and I'm sure other ethnicities kind of followed suit the same way. Yeah, I assume so. And by the way, what is the home country? Um, uh, my, my grandparents uh, emigrated from Aruba. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And do you still have family there? I, there are cousins and sort of just like stray relatives. Nice. But my parents or my mom and my uncles and aunts are all here in the U.S. now. Oh, okay. Okay. And, and as you talk about then they do have that connection to... Yeah, I mean, they go back pretty regularly. There have been a couple of family cruises or whatever. And I should talk to my family about this. I feel like there was a big migration in the early 70s. And it wasn't just my grandparents that came over here, but it was a bunch of families from the island came over roughly around the same time. Mm. Because it felt like all of the older people were my grandparents' age, and then all the younger people were my aunts and uncles' age. So they all had families around the same time and then emigrated here at the same time as well. Just out of curiosity, what was the impetus? No, and I should ask. I should find that out. Okay. Because then again, being part of the Filipino and the diaspora and all that, there's different reasons why lots of Filipinos left. Mostly it's economic because opportunities and better jobs and things that pay well just did not exist, continue to not exist in the Philippines, which is why you see lots of folks kind of moving on. And then, of course, there were just these periods in in history where countries, especially the U.S., also were poaching. So that's the reason why there's a lot of Filipino nurses, because there was a period in time where the U.S. was poaching nurses from the Philippines and giving them very attractive packages to come to the U.S. to work because there was a shortage. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Uh, My assumption is also that it was economic. Okay. Um, I think it was just, we want a better life for us. We want a better life for our kids. So let's gather up the troops and and come over. But yeah, I should make some phone calls and ask those questions. And I'm curious myself, just like, what is my family history? Mm -hmm. Because we don't talk about it very much. And people are dying off. So, yeah, it would be a good time to have that conversation. Thank you for putting that in my head. Oh, no, you're, you're welcome. And then actually, I, I, will, I will recommend that because one of the questions that we always get now, and especially as you talk about people dying off, and my grandmother you know, was living here in the Bay Area and she passed away like 10 years ago, so it's been a while. But we used to ask a lot of questions about, oh, going back generations, who's this, who's this, and some of the stories and things. And now as that generation is slowly starting to move into the next life, we don't know some of these names and right. people and all that stuff. And trying to build out a family tree is tougher because then I'm, now I'm relying on aunts or people that are close to my mom's age who are also getting old, but they remember less because they can only go back so far. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, thank you for planting that seed. With two grown kids who are yeah. out of the house, can you now look at your children as adults 
and say that you make corrections in the way that you were raised in the process of raising other people? I would like to say I try to. I think it's really, really tough. And I talked about generational trauma and trauma as as, as a concept. And at first, I I was on this thing where I never want to do all that nasty stuff that our parents did to us. Or, but I think in the end, it's kind of part of who you are. And I think it's more, at least for me personally, recognizing what behavior I should carry forward versus the ones that definitely need to stop because it's either learned or that's all I ever knew. And I I think I'm actually pretty lucky that I can have decent conversations with both my girls about this kind of stuff. We try to not hold any of that stuff back. They both go to therapy. So we try to make sure that these open conversations need to happen. I need to get on the therapy bandwagon. I I know, I know, I know. My wife is really nagging me about this, but now I feel like this is actually a really, really good time now that we're trying to figure out, going back to the top of the conversation, that next step of who we are, I feel like that is now the perfect excuse to go and do this. Because these are the conversations that she can't necessarily have with me because I got to figure out for myself. So kind of going back to that, you know, I... I'm one of those weird, I, mean, I don't know if it's a weird thing. And maybe you can tell me if you've heard this from other dads that are close to my age, but uh, no, 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 it's not a bad thing. Parents, especially as their kids get older, they do this. Oh, I loved it when they were babies. Oh, I love this toddler thing. Oh, I loved it when they were elementary. Don't get me wrong. That was fine. It was fun. It was great. But honestly, it was like, I couldn't wait for my kids to grow up. I like having a real conversation with you where I can actually pick your brain and you'll tell me what you honestly think versus I'm asking you a question and you're just like, I'm going to color this giraffe blue. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not really you know, the question I asked, but that's cool. I like to say that I, my conversations evolved with them. And to kind of go back to what you asked, I can have adult conversations and I can ask a hard question. So my older daughter, she actually works for an abortion rights organization in, in Manhattan. And so we will have honest conversations about this. And luckily, we're both on the same side about how we feel. And especially now with Roe v. Wade and everything, now her place is busy because there's lots of questions being asked. Luckily, New York is not as much of a desert, but I mean, you you go down a couple of states and it's nuts. I mean, you can also go elsewhere in New York State. That's true. But I I love these conversations. I, I look forward to that. And it also makes me happy. Like, oh. She can actually hold a conversation like this. That's a win for me. So uh, I will take that. And we can also have other dumb conversations about music and other things too. And I don't know if you could see some of the goofy Star Wars nerdy stuff in the back there. I mean, I see um, shirt. Oh yeah, and my, and my shirt. Yeah. So both my kids, we have like these really nerdy Star Wars conversations. And you just can't have that with a seven-year-old. It just doesn't go that way. Yeah, this is going to sound horrible. <laughs> I don't understand what the appeal is in having children. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> I like interacting with humans. I like the back and forth of conversation. I like banter and talking to somebody who can't reason. And then there's also the whole dependent thing. I don't want to be responsible for any human on the face of this planet. It's hard <laughs> being responsible for me. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Yeah. 
the idea of until this person is 18 years old, and a lot of times even beyond, mm -hmm. having to have this level of responsibility for somebody who has their own brain, their own mind, their own will, that just feels like unnecessary stress. It's not for everyone. I mean, there's a reason why I've never owned a dog. <laughs> Because I know my, my wife was, she was a, she's a big dog lover. And not to say that I'm opposed to it now or that I ever was, but I was like, okay, so we finally got the kids out of the damn diapers. Now you want to get a dog? This is obviously when they were smaller. I'm like, that's kind of the same thing. And you don't have to put a dog in college. No, you don't. But at some point, I stopped picking up my kids' poop with the dog. That yeah, never poop, stops. Poop is forever. It, it's, for, it, it's forever. <laughs> I'm joking, obviously. But I'm not opposed to it at all. But I completely empathize with anybody that wants to make those choices for the different reasons that they have. And again, we kind of made our choice and that was fine for us. And maybe now is the time to get a dog. It, it is on the table. You just have to yeah. do some negotiating about who picks what up. Yeah, that's okay though. I'm, I'm okay with that conversation. What is stopping you from seeing a therapist? laziness mostly. And I think that's really what it comes down to. I really don't have an excuse. I'm going to be perfectly honest. And so that was actually on my list today is to go look up the list of folks that are obviously I want to not spend an arm and a leg necessarily. It shouldn't, cost shouldn't be a factor, but it is. Yeah. So my wife is like, well, okay, I'm going to resend you the list of the folks that are in our network and go ahead and pick and choose. And she actually found somebody, I believe who was Asian American. And I think that was actually a requirement for her because it made things easy in terms of relatability and some of the trauma that she had carried that she was trying to let go of from growing up herself. And the therapist is able to relate to that. So I think those are the questions now that I'm going to ask myself. And I'm not free of baggage. I, I don't deny that. Um, no. And so I think now, again, I don't have any more excuses. I don't got to drive the kid to piano practice. I don't have this rehearsal to worry about. And not that those were good excuses before, but now they've just been obliterated. So now it's like, okay, I got to do the thing and for both of our sakes. Cause I think we both want to come out of this next phase of ourselves better and able to support each other as a couple. And I think that starts with being able to support yourself mentally. And so I think that's the reason why I'm more enthusiastic about doing it now. One thing I notice is parents when they devote so much of their time and energy into being parents. Hmm. When parenting is not a 24 hour job anymore, there is this huge hole. And it's like, well, what the hell am I going to do with myself now? I don't have to do this thing. And we touched on a lot of this at the beginning of the podcast with, with figuring out what to do when the kids leave the house. But as much as maybe you want to surround yourself with activity and projects and that kind of stuff, I think there's also a sense that when the job of parenting or the job of everyday direct hand-to-hand -hand parenting is over, there's a bunch of unaddressed stuff, whether it's from the past or it's accumulated over time, that now gets pushed up to the forefront. And you got to deal with that. And I think some people are like, oh, shit, you know? I, I think that's actually one of the, the biggest things. And we talked about everybody having baggage, and I want to address some of that unaddressed stuff some right. of it new some of it you've been holding on to for for a long time and you deal with it in the ways that you deal with it and for me it's a bunch of stuff I, I hate to admit this but i have a narcissistic mom that i still deal with and 
you don't let go of that at all. That stuff just sinks right in you every day. And even my wife has to remind me like, yeah, that, that thing's coming back out. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Other random stuff is I grew up a fat kid. And so do I suffer from body dysmorphia? Absolutely. You know? Am I always worried about what other people think of me as a result of that? Yeah, of course. Do I drown myself in things to kind of mask some other parts of my life? Absolutely. I can make the excuse that I was trying to make the perfect Manhattan, not the perfect Manhattan, but my perfect Manhattan over the COVID times. But there was probably a little bit of trauma in there why I was drinking so damn much. So I fully admit it. I mean, scene on that, because when we were shut down, I was tearing the liquor cabinet up. Oh, so. yeah. But the good thing is do come out of that because then what I realized is that, oh, I'm, even my sister-in-law and some other folks are like, what? You kind of got this bartending thing going. You can make a pretty decent drink. I'm like, okay. So do I add the list of things of who I am? Is bartender one of them? New skill? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. And, and I'll do it all the time. I'm that guy as I go back in the back. People come over, I'll whip up a concoction. I'm like, all right, what does that taste like? And they'll be like, not bad. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Take some notes down. Take your notes. And you'll switch it out. But then again, that also means I'm buying tons of liquor and trying different things and sniffing stuff and like, okay, no, that's too much of this. Oh, no, I want some of this. Let me try this new thing. But yeah, I think again, all, all of this stuff is on the table for me to kind of figure out who I am. And I think that is at least my theme coming into the rest of this year. But that's why career-wise, I'm trying to figure that part out. If you want to call this a proper midlife crisis. Maybe that's what this is, right. but I don't think I want to call it a crisis because I don't feel like the world is falling apart. It's more like an evolution. I love that. I love that. So many people think about this time when you're around our age and things change and, and your roles change, whether it's as a parent or as a spouse or just as a human being. And I can say this for me, I don't know if this is the case for you. You're looking at where you are age-wise and you're like, damn, the amount of years in front of me might be less than the number of years behind me <laughs> at this point. It's like, okay, now what do I do to make the time that I have left meaningful? How do I make myself the best person I can be in the time that I, I still have here? And is it a crisis? I think for some people, it really is. There for is sure. a full-on like, oh, shit moment. For other people, it's a chance to reflect and tweak, make changes. So viewing it as less of a crisis and more of like an opportunity or an evolution, I think is, is really valuable information, really important. Yeah. And I'm an obsessive planner when it comes to things. And so that's part of the reason why I agree with you to the sense that there is less time ahead of us versus behind us. But when I go see my regular doctors, they always remind me, and which is really weird for them to say to me, they were like, oh, you're a young guy. I'm like, I am. Yeah. But I, I guess in the medicine field or just from an age perspective, we still have a lot of time ahead of us. There's still plenty of time to do shit. And then going back to exactly what you said, how do I take advantage of and not let those petty things that used to bother me in my 20s bother me because they don't anymore. I'm, I'm you know, like, oh, you figure out, okay, that was really stupid. And so <laughs> you can kind of move on and, and, and do things that are more meaningful and not, and not sweat the small stuff. Exactly. So you and I connected initially through our friend Gary. Yeah. Who's a wonderful Shout out to Gigi. Gotta say, shout say out. a shout yeah. out. He's been on this show twice. And we connected really through music. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about music. And there's a point in time when I was like, 
does every like Filipino or Asian dude in the Bay Area like R and B music? Because <laughs> me, you, and Garrett have very similar musical tastes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. you've actually put me on to a couple of people, and I can't say specifically who they are because I don't remember. But yeah. I've definitely gotten some recommendations from you and been like, yo, this shit is dope. <laughs> I don't know if every Filipino likes R&B. I mean, only because of how I grew up. And I don't remember if I mentioned this to you, but when we moved to San Diego, the neighborhood that I grew up in, and I'm borrowing this term and I forget which comedian said this. So I did not grow up in the hood, but I grew up hood adjacent. Mm, yep. That's my high school at the time. It's mostly Filipino now because I guess they all moved in and took over. Mm. But when I grew up at the time, it was a predominantly black high school. It was mostly black, some Mexican, and then everybody else. And then maybe like a smidge of white people. And I don't know if that was part of the influence or it also could just be that that was just what resonated with me. But it does also kind of link to the past because I'm pretty sure you heard the stereotype that all Filipinos sing karaoke. <laughs> I feel like that's an Asian, a general Asian stereotype as opposed to a Filipino stereotype. <laughs> okay, fair, fair. Yes. Okay, it's very Asian, but particularly Filipinos. Yeah, we see them all the time. You see Manny Pacquiao singing karaoke or whatever. Anyway, so I, I don't know if that's also part of it too, because a lot of the songs that are very singable tend to fall into the R&B world. So Sweet. that could be it as well. Again, it just resonates with me. And I think when, you know, Garrett and I first met, that was the one thing we talked about a lot. And I think that's how we pulled you into the conversation. Is, hey, yo, you got to get it with my boy, Mike. He knows the stuff and he, he works in the industry. I was like, oh, okay. And so I think that that was the initial thread that connected all of us. Yeah. You're, you mentioned in the notes that your parents or your mom, at least, might have had a little bit of an issue with the racial makeup of the neighborhood that you grew up in at the time. And it's a weird discussion, right? Because minorities can obviously be prejudiced. I think minorities often are prejudiced. It is a really interesting thing to look at. And it bothers me a lot, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like, if you're a minority, why would you be racist against Black people, racist against Asian people, homophobic, anti-Semitic, all that stuff? We're all struggling, yeah. right? But even the other day, I was leaving the 7-Eleven. And the dude behind the counter was really almost confrontational towards me. And then a white lady walked up and he was like, oh, hi, miss. How are you today? And I was like, oh, it's like that. Mm -hmm. And so you notice these things and, and it's so hard to unpack why, or maybe it isn't hard to unpack, why minorities are prejudiced towards or hold racist attitudes towards other minority groups. Uh, I, I can't speak necessarily for other ethnic groups but for filipinos and i think this has been discussed it's it's been written about professors do talk about this it's rooted in colonialism for filipinos and so when the spanish came in they ruled the philippines for hundreds of years that kind of stuff and of course then people think about spanish they always think about these brown people no 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 these spanish were these blonde haired oh like castilian yeah, yeah. spanish people yeah yeah yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. Like they're basically white and yeah. so unfortunately if you think about hundreds of years of colonization and oppression and how do you keep a people down by telling the indigenous groups that they're lesser than these white folk and just imagine 
or lighter skinned or different folks? And how do you keep them in control by making sure that, oh, you know, we're here to save you. We're the good folks. And these other darker people here, make sure they don't get in your way to, to be good color people. And so unfortunately, that's why I, and I'm, I'm shitting on my own people, but I don't blame my own people because it was not all their fault because hundreds of years of colonization is going to have an effect on your culture and the way you kind of pass that down. And so I think luckily there's a lot of us now, and especially generations removed from the Philippines that are able to at least try and recognize this, try and reconcile what we can. And then that's why going back to the discussion of the diaspora, then understand what's out there and have those hard conversations so that way we don't pass that down. Because if you think about it, it was probably passed down to my parents from their parents from their parents before. And that's the reason why they have that attitude. But yeah, I mean, that, that was something that I, I struggled with a lot, especially going to a black high school where it was like, it's fine. And on the flip side, I remember I, I was a late bloomer. Didn't do a lot of dating in high school. I was too focused on yearbook and all these little nerdy things that I wanted to do. Editor for two years, by the way. So I got to put that out there. Hey, team yearbook. Yeah, there you go. The team yearbook. Yes. Yearbook also? Oh, was, yes. There oh, you yeah. go. There you go. The amount of work that went into this thing. So, yes. Yeah, easy to focus. And so the conversations about me not having a girlfriend or doing some of these other things would come up. And I remember this distinctly. One of the conversations was, we don't care who you date. Just make sure they're not black. And I was like, oh my God, like that's gnarly. And the way my mom talked about it was, well, because your grandma would get mad. And uh -huh. I was like, nice way oh, to throw yeah. somebody else under the bus. Right, right. So I was like, oh, those conversations were gnarly. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. So yeah. Anyways, that's a small example of, and I think maybe that's also the reason why I then lean more towards, okay, well, you don't like black people? I'm going to play more black music. Black How about music? that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hope that she is softened with age. Absolutely not. So, unfortunately, no. And this is something that we talk about as a family. And I hate to bring in politics here, but I'm going to bring a little bit. They talk about Trump and how, oh, maybe he's going to soften with age. Has he? Absolutely yeah, not. Absolutely not. He's yeah, hardened so, with age. I feel like that's my mom, too. And everybody's just like, I guess we'll just deal with it. And this is what therapy's for. Yeah, you can't save everybody. No, and I think that's also a realization too. We we can save ourselves. So that's yeah, that. the best bet is always to save yourself. I yeah. I agree. Yeah. Was there anything else that you specifically wanted to talk about during this particular conversation? No, I, at least nothing off the top of my head. I guess maybe a, if you don't mind some personal questions. Okay, how did you fall into this, or what was the impetus to start this particular podcast? And what were you hoping to share in these conversations with folks that tune in? Only because I want to make sure that, again, I, I hate to always put it back on myself. I'm like, oh, am I giving Mike the stuff he needs? Am I just rambling hey, about that? You have 100% given me what I need. Okay. So I was part of a, a, a men's group uh, here in New York City. Okay. And we, we were having some conversations. And I feel like whenever someone mentioned something for men, to the greater population, it was always gross and toxic. And it just was this hunter-gatherer, alpha male bullshit. And I was like, the dudes that I know that have conversations, they're not about this life. They're trying mm -hmm. to learn more about themselves. They're trying to be more vulnerable. They're trying to 
be better men for themselves, for their partners, for their children, for the people around them, for their families. But it's not really talked about. And also, speaking for myself and speaking for a lot of the people that I've talked to over the years, there's this sense that we don't talk about this shit with each other. People are afraid of being vulnerable. People are afraid of being soft. People are afraid of being called soft. So I was just like, how do we take these conversations, conversations that I want to have and make them public? So starting a podcast is really self-serving in a lot of ways. (laughs) It was me wanting to talk to people about things that I had questions about. And I'm like, well, if I have these questions and other people have these questions, and that was very quickly confirmed (laughs) that other people have these questions. And... Every time I talk to somebody, I learn something new about myself. Oh, okay. I like that, actually. I don't know if I ever looked at it that way. And I think maybe because of the way I grew up, because you talked about being male and toxicity and and kind of that thing. I wasn't that guy. And I think maybe that was where I struggled a little bit, too. Again, talk about being the fat kid. That's its own issue and its own ball of thing. But when you think about it, especially as kids and even going into high school and stuff, like, Again, didn't date a lot, so that kind of a little bit of a nick on your masculinity, right? Because you're supposed to be hanging out with girls and doing things. And again, not my priority, which people thought was weird. When I was in elementary school, all my closest friends were girls. And that's just the way it it resonated with me. And I was never the fastest guy. I was never the strongest guy. So all these kind of tropes about what defines masculinity, I didn't have any of them. And so I never really quite fit. Also growing up, in elementary school, mostly girls, but in high school, my friend group was half guys, half girls. And I was close to both of them in different ways. And that continues to this day. And, and then when now, especially as an adult and being a dad and being a girl dad, and you probably heard some of these conversations where people are like, oh, I don't know what to do. Whatever. I'm like, thank God I got girls. I'm not even sure what I'd be able to do if I had boys. Because again, not to say that I would question my masculinity, but it felt like a natural fit because I had kind of been in that circle and kind of done that already. So no, no I'm glad that this is being talked about. And so it turns out that there's actually more people that are closer to the way I am versus the opposite way, which I thought I was an outlier. It really is the case. And not to say that my upbringing, like on a scale of one to 10, one being completely in touch with feelings and vulnerable and 10 being completely closed off. My upbringing wasn't a 10, but it was maybe like a seven or an eight. So there's still a lot of stuff that I needed and need to unpack. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm realizing that a lot of people were sevens, eights, nines, and tens on that scale. I've, I've told people, queerness saved me. Otherwise, it would have taken, I, I don't know what I would be. But mm-hmm. it, would, it would have taken me a lot more time to unlearn a lot of the stuff that I've had to unlearn. I can resonate with that. And I think that's also funny to me too, because when I first moved to the Bay Area, and I forget if I put this on the, on the questionnaire or not. Again, brand new here, and my wife and kid hadn't followed me yet, and so I was kind of alone on island. I had some friends, not a lot of friends, but one of my best friends, who I was one of the first people that he came out to when we were in college, he was already here in the Bay Area, and he was like, yo, you can just hang out with me and my friends, and it was the best. Again, I was the opposite. I was the the straight guy among the queers, and so like, I was being actually like, who's this guy? Like, what's his agenda? What's he trying to do? Eventually I was welcomed in, but it, once we figured it out, it was natural. I had no issues. And if anything, it felt like I didn't have to pretend I'm like this macho dude or whatever. If anything, I would 
try to see what I can get away with as, as, as a straight guy amongst a bunch of gay boys. But they were like, mm, no, she's straight. I'm like, oh, fine. So... I mean, sometimes gay dudes can be as rigid in their judgments of what masculinity is as straight guys can be. I, I think that's something that doesn't get looked at a whole lot. Yes, yes. And I think that's the one thing I've learned is also there is the same thing. And especially amongst the gay Asian community, there is also a diaspora of lots of different stories and lots of interesting, like how how they came to be where they are. It's actually really cool talking to all my friends about your stories and stuff. Yeah, and I mean, the other reason, or one other reason I do this is because people are fascinated. Um, and I think hearing the stories of all the different people that I speak to, again, when I listen to it, I always get something out of it. And I imagine other people who maybe don't have access to cultural minorities, sexual minorities, people who are struggling with whatever, people who are struggling with mental illness, all that stuff can listen and maybe it'll spark a little piece of knowledge or empathy within them and it'll lead to ultimately a greater understanding. Storytelling is so important. Getting to hear the experiences of others is so important and it adds to your growth. It adds to your skill set just as a human being. Yeah, and that is what I'm hoping that I was able to contribute. I think you did very well in doing that. If if somebody can walk out of this and be like, hey, that's something that resonates with me, one person, then I will feel accomplished. So, yeah. I think we nailed it. (laughs) Big, big shout out to Elmar for taking the time to sit with me and be on the podcast and speak so vulnerably. If you would like to keep in touch with Almar, you can do so. He is on Instagram as Almar Says Stuff, A-L-M-A-R-S-E-Z-S-T-U-F-F. So uh, give him a follow. Tell him you came through via Detoxicity. And um, I'm wishing him well, hoping that he comes back at some time to talk more. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, you get access to exclusive episodes, you get episodes a little earlier than the general public, you get a cool-ass sticker, lots of stuff, once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod, quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music, and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace